Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Back in those days, there was no TV coverage, you know. I was in a Chinese restaurant somewhere and somebody came in and said, you got five nominations. And it was like a bold <laughs> the blue, you know. <laughs> Hello, and you're very welcome along to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast from Virgin Media News. I am political correspondent Gavin Riley, joined as ever in studio by news correspondents Zara King. Hello. And Richard Chambers. Hey. Richard, are you uh, newly liberated from uh, documentary booth duty? <laughs> uh, Trump's last stand finally made it out uh, Tuesday night. We got there in the end. Free man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, great reception to it. Delighted. We got it out there, so yeah. Uh, Still available to watch on the Virgin Media Player if anyone didn't manage to catch it. Uh, We have a lot to get into, so let's get straight to it. And uh, because sometimes we have to discuss some fairly difficult or sometimes fairly heavy-going topics, and there will be some of that later in this week's episode, uh, let's start with something a little happier. Let's take a look at our first clip. I don't know, it was like Italian 90 all over again or something. It was was just amazing, yeah. Um, You know, a historic day like for Irish film. First time there's ever been an Irish film nominated in this category. First time there's ever been an Irish language film nominated at the Oscars. You know, t- t- for me as an Irish speaker, who's like myself and Cleona, who's the producer on the film, like we're married and we're raising our kids in Dublin here through Irish and it just means the world to us. It's incredible. Wow, that is so exciting. Isn't it lovely? Yeah. yeah. Colin Barry, the writer and director of On Colleen Q and celebrating yesterday as his film was nominated for an Academy Award, one of 14 Academy Award nominations for films and performers on this island. Uh, one man who knows a little bit about getting nominated for Academy Awards is six-time nominee uh, Jim Sheridan, who's joining us now. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for talking to us this week uh, on the group chat. Um, if it doesn't sound too twee or glib a question, did you ever think you'd see the day where there were 14 nominees from the island in any one year? No, um, well, I did, but um, I didn't know how long it would take, you know. I think it's like in 92, Neil Jordan got six for a crime game. And the following year, we got one more for In the Name of the Father. And I think since then, it's been roomed it very well. And one other movie that year, I can't remember. And, you know, this is an amazing achievement. I... Love both movies, you know, uh, and Mescal's an amazing actor. I was with Colm and his wife in Spain recently and they were surprised they hadn't seen the movie, but I've seen it since and it's really good. And I think if if it was in English, you'd think Carrie Crowley might have gotten nominated. She's so mm. good, you mm. know, and the little girl. It's, it's a wonderful good. little movie. Uh, not little, but, you know, it's a wonderful movie. And it's great to see the Banshees getting doing so well. <laughs> Like, I mean, McDonough's a genius, you know. It's And I don't think we give him enough respect in Ireland, you know. Yeah. I know what you mean, Jim. Obviously, you've been through this process now and so many people, 14 people or 14 award nominations. You've been there. There's three separate Oscars where you've, you know, you've gotten the nod there. Can you just tell us what it's like 
from that process when you get told that you're nominated for an academy award right through you're going through you know you, the tuxedo on or whatever you want to wear yourself jim uh you're going to the oscars what what are your standout sort of memories from that time or did you really you know it's it's probably hard to sort of put yourself back in that place did some of it pass you by at the time or what, what do you remember about all that oh no it doesn't pass you by yeah um, it's very exciting <laughs> um you know it's like back in those days there was no tv coverage you know uh, I was in a Chinese restaurant somewhere and somebody came in and said, you got five nominations. And it was like a bold out of the blue, you know. Um, so that, that was my left foot, you know. Mm. Uh, and and then the next year we got nominated with The Field and then In the Name of the Father. So it was a great run. And, and you know, I'm, I'm delighted all the time to see these other people come along and, you know, do so well. Lenny Abramson and you know, uh, Element and Ed Guiney and uh, uh, they're a really good company. And, you know, Martin McDonough is a rule unto himself, you know. You know, it used to be like this. Every 10 years, an Irish play would play on Broadway. It would be Philadelphia, here I come, followed by Da, followed by Dancing at Lunasa. Mm. And it was kind of the same in the Oscars. But Martin McDonough has had about five or six plays on the, you know, Broadway and the yeah. West End. So... He's just a rule to himself. And if he's lucky and sticks around, he might get an into the Irish independent top 50 films. <laughs> Irish films. <laughs> and Jim, how does it actually work? You might give us a peek behind the curtain because I think a lot of people probably don't understand the process. So you're nominated. When someone is nominated now, what's the journey between nomination and actually winning? Like it's quite an expensive process, isn't it? Over the next couple of weeks, a lot of campaigning that goes on. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, the studios are only delighted to spend the money from the income of the films to promote them at the Oscars. It's probably the most successful spend, as they call it, in America, because you've got a captive audience. You've got, you know, all the journalists keep jumping on it. And, it, it you know, the, what you put out, you get 10 times back. But, you know, the whole trade used to survive on the Oscars mm. and it became, you know, uh, like a political campaign as opposed to an award show, you know. Mm. And I think it stayed like that. You know, I think Martin has a good chance, definitely, for screenplay and uh, Colin has a great chance. But it's going to be, you know, be difficult to beat everything everywhere all at once, which is an Asian feel-good story. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's so great to... They got all these nominations. Now let's get a few wins, as they say. Mm. What's what's Oscar night night like, though, Jim? I mean, we all see the telecast now, or we watch it the day after here on the television. What's what yeah. was your favorite memory from an Oscar night? I mean, who do you get to sit beside? Do you get any choice yeah. in who you're sitting beside? Who are you who are you chatting to in the aisles? What's going on there? Yeah, that's interesting. The first night I was there was Denzel Washington. Ah, oh, amazing. Wow. Yeah, and then he asked me to do, I met him to do a movie. Sitting behind me was Bruce Springsteen and Neil Young the next time. Wow. wow. And Neil Young asked me to do a shoot of a concert, which I did, mm. which recently he was looking for the footage of again. It was with Pearl Jam in the RDS. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, it's a networking thing as well then, Jim, is it? Because you, you, you depend on who you're sitting near. There's opportunities yeah. there to be found. Yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't know what the word networking meant back then. <laughs> um, I'm not too clear you know, either now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just, that has become a buzzword. But they were just two things, you know. I didn't do the thing with Denzel. But I did it with um, 
with Neil, mm. and uh, you meet a lot of people. I mean, you know, like Martin McDonough is going to be sitting there, but like he's done a few American movies, but like I think the Irish ones are with the ones with a an Irish DNA are better, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, in Bruges and this one. Um, it's just a thing. It's very hard to go to another culture and and replicate it, you know. So I, I think I found that even though I did, you know, a few movies that were successful, it, it's it, when you know your territory, you're better off, you know. Uh, one last question, Jim, because we're almost out of time. Just I suppose you've had a better perspective than most people on how Ireland is perceived in Hollywood or, you know, at the Oscars. I mean, you know, for a tiny little country, are we doing quite well globally, do you think, given given this result this week? You know, this is the moment where we pat ourselves in the back. And yes. yes, we're doing way better than you could ever imagine. I mean, you wouldn't have any. I would not even say in L.A. Maybe if you took Hell's Kitchen in New York, you've got Stallone. Timothy Chamelet, mm. you know, my friend who's a writer, Bobby Moresco and a few others. But like, we've got five times that in Dublin. Mm. So, you know, it's it's so surreal how good the Irish are at storytelling and uh, and the arts. It's And they don't, it doesn't get supported, you know. And, you know, I don't want to get into it because there's some poor person out there who doesn't, can't pay their electricity bill. And I'm going to say, you know, Screen Ireland should get many more millions, which they should. So, you know, you can never win on that because people don't have a an equation. The same with, sure. I think, RTE. I know you guys in Virgin think, yeah, I, I, I think the opposite. I think both are, are you know, I think RTE should be funded because um, you need a public broadcaster to stand against these streamers. Um, and I think Screen Ireland should be, and they've got 15 billion, you know, they've got so much money, the Irish government that's, they should be giving it out. Food for thought. Um, Jim, we will let you go. Thanks so much for giving us your insights into the state of the industry and uh, getting to rub shoulders with unlikely people uh, at Oscar night. I'm going to be watching all the unlikely seating arrangements now. Uh, Jim Sheridan, thanks so much for joining us this week on the Great Chat. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Come on, Jim. Bye. Welcome back to the group chat. We wanted to spend a little bit of time this week talking about Ireland's problems with racism. And already I'm conscious that there might be a lot of viewers or listeners who might not think that Ireland, in fact, has much of a problem with racism. Uh, I suspect it's probably the case that if you don't think Ireland has a problem with racism, then you've never been on the receiving end of some hostile or unwanted commentary. Um, One of our guests in studio this week uh, has received a lot of that in the last couple of weeks. Author, activist, uh, teacher, presenter, all-round legend, uh, Imre O'Neill. Imre, thank you for joining us this week on the group chat. Um, You have found yourself in the last couple of weeks at the receiving end of a lot of hostile commentary, at least online, if not in other places too. Uh, We start by just asking you to tell us exactly how you've come into harm's way in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, um... Yeah, so the commentary has been uh, vile, to say the least. Um, I think it kind of started as a personal attack on me with like certain claims of, you know, you're looking for fame and limelight. You tried your hand at presenting, you were crap. Um, So this is your way, you know, to try and gain some fame. And I just like it's laughable because Never have I ever experienced necessarily a positive outcome for standing up to racism um, and in general in the history of the world. If somebody wants to be famous or to have limelight or advance their career, 
you generally don't stand up and speak about something that's not really recognised as such, mm. you know, mm. um, and isn't always the common um, kind of theme or understanding by mm. many, you know. Uh, just to bring people up to speed for people who aren't fully familiar with the background details of it, and we don't need to go over it too yeah. much because it's all out there in the public anyway. Yeah. Uh, you were at a live show with Tommy Tiernan and he made a joke that you objected to. You raised concern about that joke. You called it out online. Which is, of course, you're right. And yeah. if you are if you feel aggrieved by something, it is, of course, your entitlement to bring it up. Yeah. What was the immediate reaction when you did that? Um, just uh, things like, did you not know what you were going to? You know, you work for RTE and so does he. How did you not know that they're the kind of jokes he tells? You're a slow snowflake. Uh, you're so easily offended, always playing the victim. Um, there was a lot of here she goes again because I'm I'm an activist, like I'm an ag- activist for equality and, uh, you know, especially ethnic minority groups. Um, that's my f- main focus always has been. Um, but yeah, just that kind of sensitivity, can't you take a laugh or this also censored new world uh, cancel culture or being woke, you know, you can't get away with saying anything anymore. And I suppose my, my response to that is a hard racism is never comedy if you as a comedian need to punch down like that um, it says a lot more about you I believe and there are plenty of comedians out there that are amazing at their craft that don't need to to diminish or degrade minority groups to get a laugh you know so um, I appreciated obviously um, that Tommy did reach out to me and apologise I did try and meet up with him in person um, and unfortunately he said he was too busy to do that Um, just to kind of reiterate the fact that apologising to me is not something that I actually ever asked for Um, and what was probably more important and on the scale of making change and a difference would have been a public statement Mm. because it would have shown him as an advocate for our community and an activist for our community and it would have expressed and stopped the kind of um, misinformation that was going around in terms of, you know, he he took ownership. Uh, Mm. expressed that it was offensive and he should have been called out about it and it was taken from his set and and furthermore has been dropped by Free Now, um, a taxi company, because they also don't stand for hate speech. Um, And, you know, I think, you know, I have to commend them for taking that stand. I in no means wanted this to be an Emer and Tommy thing and I think that's what people made it. What it is, is about racism in Ireland, about the lack of diversity here, the lack of education and the need for us to move forward because we're decades behind other countries in terms of even just acknowledgement of it. It's like uh, my tweet, I tweeted yesterday and just said, I'm actually, I'm going to explode. I think if I hear another person say to me that they're shocked when they hear about a story about racism, because how can you be shocked? Like you have to literally have your head in the sand. And it means that, you know, you as an individual, you need to open up your world, you know, like who are your friends who are, are in your community? Because if you know even one person from an ethnic minority group, our stories are all the same because mm-hmm. we go through the same issues, you know, on the regular. And Emer, do you think that comes from a place of unconscious bias where people think, well, if I don't feel it or my friends don't feel it or I don't see it, then it's not happening? Absolutely. And I think unconscious bias is the key word in a lot of this um, because I I do think that a lot of the time there isn't malice as such behind, but there's a lack of education. And then, you know, when you when you live in a systematically racist world, um, you know, we are all 
unconsciously biased about things. Like I am unconsciously biased about things. And I feel like if you can't step back and reflect on that, then you're, you're probably doing something wrong. Mm. Um, you know, when you look at in terms of like the European standard of beauty, what's put out in the media, like all of that kind of stuff, even in itself, gives you an unconscious bias of what is attractive and what is beautiful, right? Mm. So, you know, you see a person of African descent, you know, we we don't have thin and straight long nose. We don't have, you know, certain size lips. Our body shapes are different. Don't even mention the hair, you know. So I think, you know, until you start seeing those changes within the media and more representation and equality and diversity, that people are seeing it every day, it becomes the norm. And it's not like either tokenistic um, or, you know, where you get to a point where it doesn't have to be even like a thought. Mm. Mm. Um, but the un unconscious bias, like I had a conversation with an old school friend and um, she said, oh, you know, I, I saw what was happening and, you know, but, I, you know, I like I like Tommy and, you know, and I just kind of feel like, is it really racist here though, Emer? Like, and I just kind of said, you know, I can't. Yes, it is. And it's really hard for me to continue to answer that question until people start to do the work themselves mm. and the education themselves and also open up themselves to community. Because I, I asked her straight out, I said, do you have any friends from an ethnic minority group? Mm. And she said no. Yeah. And I said, that's the main reason why you're asking me the question about is there racism here? Because I can promise you that if you did have friends or relatives or, you know, in any way were engaged in that community, you would understand and know the severity of the issues that go on daily for so many from ethnic minority groups here in Ireland. Do you think that there's an element of sensitivity in Ireland about this, that we don't like being, you know, having a mirror held up to ourselves when we talk about things like racism, that Irish people have an immediate defensiveness when you bring up issues of racism? Mm. I do a little bit, yeah. And I, it, like, I, I find it really hard, a hard. It's a hard pill to swallow for yeah. me because we ourselves are immigrants. You know what I mean? Like when you, date back and you think of the slogans, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, like at one point in our ancestors' lives, you know, we were looked at as, you know, second class yep. citizens, yep. as, you know, um, dangerous, violent alcoholics. There was times where having an Irish name, an Irish accent, you couldn't get a job, you couldn't get housing, uh, you know, you were treat treated lesser than. You were treated as if you were a black person, like literally, that's kind of the whole thing. So it's not like we don't have experience of, you know, understanding what it's like to be discriminated against um, and also go to other countries yeah. and try and make a life for ourselves there because we have friends, families, um, you know, our loved ones that are living all over the world still. It's not like just a past tense thing, you know. We've got people in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Great Britain. They're all, we're all over the world as Irish people. Um, and thankfully, we're not really facing that extent, no. you know, of racism now, but it definitely is something to do with our past. And I think sometimes people say in terms of racism and black history, you know, I wasn't a slave owner. I wasn't alive 400 years ago. Why is this my problem? And why are we still talking about this? The problem is that Yes, there isn't slavery anymore, but a lot of the oppression and discrimination that stems from back then is still apparent today. Mm. So mm. 
if you ever stood back and actually wondered why, for some reason, you have this unconscious bias that somebody with brown or black skin potentially might be uneducated, you know, uh, be a leech to the system, you know, not have a, a job, um, be dangerous in some kind of way. It all dates back to to history, mm. you know, because mm-hmm. it's been ingrained within the systems of the world that people of colour are A, B, C and D. And unless you as yourself challenge that supposed norm and really educate yourself and and learn about history, like it's very hard for your mind frame to change or for you to be able to step back and realise, oh my goodness, I am unconsciously biased and I'm getting it now. I understand. Mm. Because when the penny drops for people, like those on their journey to allyship, when that penny drops and when you see it, when you see the lack of representation in terms of ethnic diversity, you will never unsee it again, Mm. ever. Can I ask just just one thing on it because I think it's what's interesting what both yourself and Emma Dabry as well who yeah you know an amazing writer if anybody's out there oh yeah absolutely get on her books they're sensational but what so, both of you experienced which I noted over the week was that it wasn't just even the question of yeah. well here's people with anonymous accounts who are well very brave to say whatever they want to say behind anonymous you know usernames but people were actually with their full name their yeah. full profile image were slanging racism at you guys. It didn't matter what social network it was on. I just thought that was something which was quite interesting. And I wonder, we talked a little bit about this before yeah. we, we did the podcast. Is Do you think that there's a there's an emboldment there at the moment? And why do you think that is? Yeah, like, I'm not shocked by that because yeah. this isn't the first time this has happened to me. You no, know, this same kind of thing happened to me and my family about three years ago. And um, when I started, it was the first time I started speaking out about racism in Ireland. And because I felt, you know, after the death of George Floyd, that a lot of people were pointing fingers at the US. And I was like, Guys, like I've, I'm born and raised here. You don't even, I can't even start to begin to tell you the things that I've been through. It's happening on our doorstep. Like, do not point fingers mm. because when you point a finger, you've got three of them pointing right back at you. And like that kind of self-reflection was needed. But I never had the courage or confidence to speak out about it. But when I did do that, there was a lot of those that commentary, you know. And it's been quiet for a little while, and then you know. Now, again, I've stood up for something that we should have all, everybody in that room with me, every all my fellow Irishmen should have stood up and said, that's not okay. You know, racism is not comedy, period. Um, but they didn't. And mm. there was a lot of laughter. And that was an isolating position. But then to see the rhetoric and commentary afterwards was even harder, I think, to really grasp. Um, but there's strength in numbers. So like when you see one person write a comment, and you're like, well, okay, they wrote that comment. So, you know, it kind of gives you a bit of strength and you're like, you know what? Yeah, loose lip. I, yeah. I, this is how I actually feel. Mm. And I'm going to be that key, keyboard warrior and I'm going to just go ahead and, and say what's really on my mind. And the scary thing is these people, like I've seen some people from Bray that I know, like I won't say we're friends, but we'd be acquaintances. Mm. And to see some of the stuff that they've written is, it's so hurtful, you like know. people who would salute you in the supermarket. Absolutely, you know, oh, that's what I'm saying. They're like, they're the people in your baby groups. They're the ones you're going for coffee with. They're your friends, they're your family. They're potentially your loved ones, like, you know, and you just see it, you know, that ugly head kind of raise when, and, and social media gives this platform for a lot of incitement for hate mm. and misinformation as well, mm. you know, um, and it, it's just, you know, it's a kind of a, a snowball thing. And I think pointing out that, you know, companies, when they hire you, a lot of places do checks. They do social media checks. They will Google your name. And I think people forget that, you know, 
potentially either now in the job that you're in, should your employer see that, you know, you're 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 spouting this vile hate, uh, it could potentially affect your job right now. Mm. Um or it could affect your job in the future because companies don't want to hire people that are not inclusive and, um, you know, don't love other cultures and other people. Like in terms of business and work, everything we do, we're connected to the rest of the world mm. and what we do. Mm. The things, the music we listen to, the clothes we wear, you know, in general, like everything we do has come from cultures from all over yeah. the world. Yeah. And we can't deny that. Do you, uh, sorry, I think that another point that you make there about the people making those comments is that actually it's not bots or it's not fake accounts. Yeah. That's the takeaway from that, isn't Absolutely. it? Is that like, I actually think that maybe there's a perception sometimes that these are bots or yeah. they're fake accounts and that it generates. But like you're saying, yeah. there's there's people behind those profiles Absolutely. who are very real, Absolutely. who are very much, you know, like people that you know. And I think that's just to reiterate that point again. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about being an ally, and I think there might be people who listen to the podcast today who might be having an aha moment about yeah. unconscious bias, actually. And, um, you know, they may want to learn, actually. Mm-hmm. Um for you, I suppose, you touched on it already, being an ally begins with understanding and mm-hmm. accepting that unconscious bias. What other, you know, kind of key factors are part of being a good ally? Well, history is huge. So understanding the history, the history of racism is huge. Like, I honestly did not learn about that until I went to America when I was 18 because it's not part of our curriculum. Mm-hmm. And teachers that do cover that within the Irish curriculum, it's by choice. Um, so, like, that's that's huge. Understanding the history of slavery Um the history of where the N-word derives from and what it really means and people so loosely use it. Um, and then like our own history of being immigrants ourselves and the racism that we were persecuted through too. Mm. Um, but I have a, a TED talk um, and I talk a lot about unconscious bias. So I, I talk about things that might trigger, you know, thoughts for other people like I've done that, you know, or you know, oh my goodness, I've seen that happen. And I've never, I didn't say anything, you know, but going forward, you know, I'm, I'm going to speak up. Um, Olympic Ireland, uh, sorry, Sports Ireland did a uh, delete, ban and report, yeah. don't scroll by campaign that I was a part of. And it's like the simplest thing, simplest mm-hmm. concept, but to actually do it really does make a change. You know, that you're reporting these comments, you're 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 blocking these people, you're banning, and also that you're reaching out to the victims. Because honestly, for me, throughout the course of the last three years on my activist journey, if it wasn't for people reaching out to me, um, I wouldn't know that generally the majority of people really do support Mm. Mm. change and equality and are not racist and do get it and are working on their way towards allyship. But that communication with people is is so important. Like I'll get a message that'll say, look, I don't usually do this. Like just reach out to someone I don't even know, but I just wanted to say to you, like fair play. And I'm really sorry that you're going through that. I'm actually ashamed of my Irish fellow Irishman, like, I just can't even believe it, you know. And a comment like that and stay strong, you know, and be the voice for people that that, that can't have that voice or don't know how to use our voice. Um, a message like that for me negates like a hundred, you know, yeah. negative okay. comments. Because it could be easy for people just to to, to almost try and ignore it. Yes. It can be d- uncomfortable for somebody to come to you and say that. But you, they need to yeah. put that 
you know, discomfort to a side yeah. because there's doing the right thing is kind yeah. of the important and thing. And it's isn't like, it? even, like that discomfort of having those conversations. Yeah. Like, and I have, I've chat, like I do anti-racism workshops. I do them in schools and I do them in organizations and more so in a lot of organizations as of late before it was just schools. And now I'm seeing companies like really like investing in it, you know, um, and it just kind of goes to show that, you know, people do want to make change. They want to know how to make change. And I'm one of those people that I don't mind talking about it. And I mm. I like to talk about it. I learn as much as somebody else does. I don't have all the answers. I think we need to learn together and we need to figure it out together as a country. Um, but also, there are people from ethnic minority groups that have been through so much trauma that they they don't have the capacity to talk about mm-hmm. these things, you know, and it is a lot of pressure on a person to have to educate people yeah. when all of the resources are out there for you, yeah. the podcasts, yeah. the books, the documentaries, you know, and it's like simple things like start in your own home, just look around your home. So what kind of books do you have? Are the authors people of color, um, you know, how cultured is your own home and your own even movie selections, mm. right? Um, like Netflix has a section where it's literally like um, protagonists are all people of colour, you know, mm. so you can go in and see somebody in a leadership role or, you mm. know, being the main person. And because a lot of times that's not the case. So you have to do the work to go out and see that. And then the way you change your life within your home, if you have children, mm. you know, they see that too. Like it's an it's an actual effort, you know, you want to make sure that their toys are diverse and not just because I, I feel like when you're from one minority group, you are from them all, right? There's this intersectionality that people somehow forget about or can't quite connect them. Mm. But like, let's say, you know, you're a feminist. What about black and brown women? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, uh, you know, as a white woman, that's not really me, like anything to do with me, though. But as a feminist, we are both women, Mm take that other factor away. We're both women, you know, and you, so no matter so what race you are, how you identify, you know, your sexual orientation, your class, your gender, your religion, like somebody falls into at least one of those character mm-hmm. uh, into those yeah. um, communities, yeah. if not you, somebody that, you know, a family member and our lived experiences of trauma are, are so similar. You know, so I believe that if you want to try and understand racism and how to help, think of ways that you have in the past for other minority groups and do the same thing. Like there's no reinvention of the wheel, you know, it's. Yeah, well, it's a journey that that everyone, I think, has to go on at some point and whether people are at different stages of it, it's a journey that everyone does go through. And hopefully, as Zara said, this is a conversation that has maybe triggered some aha moments for people who are tuning in today. Um, Your TEDx talk is available still to watch online, so that might be a good starting place if people want to get into it. Um, Thanks so much for coming in to talk to us today, Emer O'Neill. Thanks for joining us. And um, you can find, yeah, that TED talk is on my Instagram. So Emer O'Neill 14. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So Emma O'Neill joining us this week on the group chat to talk about her experiences of racism in Ireland. I think uh, after a discussion like that, it is going to be very difficult to ever say again that you are shocked or Mm. surprised by the tone of hostility that some people face in this country. Absolutely. And I think one of the main takeaways from the conversation with Emer actually was that she really thinks it's important when people reach out as allies and send messages to say, look, I'm sorry you're going through a tough time and here's a message of support. And that's something that maybe we don't think about and talk about actually often enough because when, you know, she's in that situation and she's being bombarded by so many vicious, abusive messages and comments, you know, to hear even one person come out of the darkness of that and say, like, I hope you're doing all right and I'm solidarity with you is actually hugely important. And, you know, probably something that's not um, said enough and that, you know, she really values those kind of comments that that is part of standing up and being an ally and standing Mm. beside someone. But like, I think today's conversation with Emer will potentially have been an aha moment for a lot of people. And I think that that's can only be positive. And I think it's, you know, we said it to her when she was coming in, when she was leaving today, like it's it's so unfortunate that Emer has to be in the situation that she even has to come in today and meet us under those circumstances. Yeah. Actually, we've all kind of come across Emer on social media and for various different um, things over the last couple of years, but this is our first chance to meet in person and it's just really unfortunate that it was under these particular circumstances. Yeah, yeah it's something just like what Zara was saying, like it, we were talking to Emer when it was over and it's kind of like, there is a question around media around this as well, is that... Mm. Um, so often when we talk about issues around this that we often ask victims of things to come in and sort of go back over what happened to you. Uh, and really, that's probably not what we should expect of people who've gone through things. Mm. Uh, that if we're going to address racism, we kind of just need to have a look at ourselves. Mm. Uh, we have to look at, you know, all of our own conduct, all of our own unconscious, unconscious bias, uh, as we said there. And yeah, I mean, Emer, we were chatting during the week as well about this and she says that she had some thoughts around why she thinks it's particularly prevalent now or why she feels that people are more emboldened now that people are sticking their names to things again which they previously would have hidden behind things on. A lot of it is down to, as she sort of says, she says that there is a lot of it which is to do with what we've seen outside uh, refugee centres over the last while as well that people are seeing uh, almost a public um, acceptance and a way that they feel there's a, you know, there's, there's a solidarity. Emboldened. You yeah. feel emboldened if you see people beside you who are happy to have their faces and say, horrendous things and to, you know, throw abuse at people. And that's something which is worth thinking about as well. It's a big problem in in that light because so much of that on the face of it is motivated against, well, Ireland should be for the Irish and we should prioritise and look after our own. And it's very blind to the the true reality that many of those people are our own. Eamon was born here. She's from Bray. She's not from anywhere else. She is as Irish as anybody else. And like she said, when, when we were packing up and leaving the studio as well, we don't want to say, talk too much about what we were talking mm. after the, the mics went, but she was talking about 
this idea of having to constantly reinforce or defend her Irishness or trying to like, you know, this idea that yeah, her legitimacy that as an even, Irish person is questioned. Yeah, and that shouldn't even matter. Like, it shouldn't matter whether you were born and raised here, whether you're treated with dignity and respect. Like, it just mm. shouldn't matter. You know, the bottom line is, like, is that to say then, are we saying that, you know, nobody can live in any land that they weren't born in? Like, it's a ridiculous assertion, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. To suggest that anyone of any colour or creed can't live in um, in a place that they weren't born. So I think, like, the point you make, Richard, is really valid in that, like, you know, it's unfortunate that we have to ask people to come in after they've had a traumatic experience and relay that and have that be some kind of like lessons will be learned moment. But like, what's the alternative? Do we not have that conversation then? You know, it's so no, important. No, you do, but you, you have, have to have challenge it. people. You have to challenge people the fact that, you know, why do we ask the people who are the victims of things mm. nonstop to have to do it? Mm. Yeah. Whereas we don't challenge people about, well, why why are you have the why do you have that view? Mm. What's mm. happened in your life that you think that that's okay to say yeah. and put your name to? Well, I suppose the something of an answer to that is that we're three white people sitting in a room and and we couldn't talk about the problem without talking about someone who's been at the receiving end of it because no matter how much um, empathy you might think you have or how supportive you want to be of marginalised groups that in truth people like us are probably never going to know what it's like to be in the receiving end of racism so we're going to have to hear from from those who have been and and it's tricky and and it's it's awful that it means asking people to re-traumatise themselves all the time but it might be the only way that you can really Well, understand. I'm going to say like there are people now and people who have gone through this multiple times and they keep on saying, well, why do the media keep making us do this? So I'm just saying what people are saying as well. Mm. So it is one to ponder anyway. It is a difficult one. But as you say, you know, the conversation needs to happen in some way. So there's no perfect way of doing it. No, there's not. Uh, really appreciate Emer coming in to tell us uh, her story. Her TEDx talk is really worth checking out. And hopefully this was a bit of a, an aha moment for, for some people who might not have ever thought about it before. Uh, one other story which has dominated a lot of uh, airtime, certainly dominated a lot of my mind this week, whether people think it's warranted or not, uh, is the ongoing controversy surrounding Pascal Donahue and his posters and whether it was appropriate for him to accept help putting up posters, whether in fact it is permissible for him to accept that help and whether it actually warrants a lot of the coverage that there's been. Uh, first of all, let's play a little clip of Pascal Donahue acknowledging some wrongdoing in the Dáil on Tuesday evening. I am now aware that an unauthorised corporate donation of €434.20 was unknowingly received by Fine Gael Dublin Central. This was in the form of the use of vehicles, the commercial value of which exceeded the maximum allowable donation limit of €200. SIPO have been notified of this breach and €234.20, the amount received in excess of the allowable limit, will be refunded to the designer group. It feels like everybody and his neighbour and his pet dog has had their spake on Pascal Dunhu at this point. But for people, how can you boil it down as simply as possible? What is exactly the situation here? Why were people up in arms about it? But also, why were people willing to clean, give him the clean bill of health <laughs> before every single question had been answered and before full details had actually been released. Uh, let's deal with that last question first then. It's because yeah. Pascal Dunne who is likeable and I think a lot of people thought that because it's a likeable fella who never has had, a, had any sense of impropriety before now 
Uh, if somebody gave him a bit of help putting the posters, sure, what's the big deal is their attitude. Um, there are three reasons why it warrants a lot of coverage and I'll, I'll try and be sort of fairly brief with them because this could be as long as your arm otherwise. Um, the, first <laughs> thing, episode. The, the first one that I'll do is, that I'll address, is this question of patronage. Uh, and this is, I'm going to talk, talk with that first because I think it's the easiest one to put away. There has been a, an inference that Michael Stone, the guy who helped Pascal, who put up with his posters in two campaigns, um, had some material benefit from that, that he was appointed to uh, a directorship of the Land Development Agency, mm. a big state builder, that he was appointed the chair of a state task force on regenerating the northeast inner city and dealing with some some social problems there. Um, the, he was appointed to those roles and it may well have been linked to his status as a Fine Gael donor. He may have been on Pascal's on whose radar to be recommended for those because he's a Fine Gael donor. Um, but there is no inference that he ever materially benefited. Certainly he had yeah, maybe the esteem of those roles. It meant that he had a lot of face time with Pascal Dunne, who was minister, with success of Taoiseach in his role overseeing this state body for the northeast inner city. Um, but there, no one can pin anything to suggest that he has materially benefited from that. And anyone who has had any interactions with Michael Stone says he's a fairly, fairly civic-minded guy. So he's mm. doing all of this genuinely yeah. for the benefit of the area. So that, that's one aspect. The second is... Um, political donations. And Ireland in the past had a huge problem with political donations of people in public office accepting inappropriate payments from people who wanted something out of them. Yes. Often to do with rezoning of land and bribery of councillors and TDs and, and huge, huge money going around. And the reason why we have limits now on political donations is precisely to try and take that out of politics. Now, our limits now for political donations are quite small. A, a company can only donate €200 Euro to a person or a party. An individual politician can only accept a grand a year from any one donor. Mm -hmm. A party can only accept two and a half grand mm -hmm. from any one donor. And those are small limits and they might seem like sure, small infractions of that are no big deal. But the limits are there for a reason. The limits are to stop people with money buying political influence. And in this instance, at the very least, we have had, whether it's inadvertent or not, and people will have their own uh, minds as, as to whether this was a whole deliberate concoction. But we've had um, Pascal Donoghue and the Fine Gael branch in Dublin Central accepting corporate donations beyond what is permissible. That mm. was the big the big aha moment from Pascal Donoghue's appearance on Tuesday of this week. Even if it was only the lending of a van to put up posters, you can't just lend corporate services or you can't lend the use of a product or an entity like a van or anything else without having to disclose that as a donation. And the, the donations limits are there for a reason. And that was a donation far more than the 200, which is allowed, which is why Pascal Donahue now embarrassingly has to hand it back. And that brings to the third aspect, which is Pascal Donahue, for a lot of the time that we're talking about for these donations, is the minister responsible for ensuring a robust and up to scratch ethics law. And Pascal Donoghue now admits that he became aware in 2017 that a van was lent to his campaign in 2016. That's campaign spending, has mm -hmm. to be disclosed, mm -hmm. and he didn't do so. And Pascal Donoghue admits himself, yeah, he should, really should have gone back and corrected the record on that. Um, but he is the minister responsible for the ethics system and is now, whether it's unknowing or not, has breached the ethics system twice. He's the minister for finance who didn't know how his campaign was being financed. He's a cabinet minister who was unaware of two four-figure donations to his party. And it might be small... In the whole grand scheme of things, it might be small potatoes compared to some of the other scandals that we've had in, in this country in the past and other scandals elsewhere in the world. But if you think that the rules are there for a reason, then surely the rules have to be abided by and not least by the guy who is responsible for making sure the rules are there yeah. for And I think maybe it's the point that you make about not knowing how it was financed. There's a lot of people in this country who know exactly where all their money is going at all times because they're struggling to pay their bills and they're struggling to, you know, do X, Y and Z. That the concept that somebody wouldn't know how something was paid for is kind of alien to those people. Yeah. And that, you know, like it's the not knowing kind of is it, what it's people also find kind of 
yeah. that's quite a, a privileged thing to not know how something yeah. is being paid for. And it's alien to a lot of politicians too because they will tell you that posters are a very central part of their whole um, election spending. There are ca- there are very serious caps on mm-hmm. how much you can spend in elections, again, to stop you buying influence or buying your way into positions of power. Um, and posters are a very expensive part of most people's campaigns. Mm. So most people would say, they would, they would certainly contend, you would know exactly how many posters have been up and you know exactly mm. how many people did it. So a lot of politicians found the contention that he didn't know who was putting up his posters or that they were paid to do so a little far-fetched, but it's it's up to individuals to decide whether the story is tenable or not. Is he safe now? I know a lot of the press and a lot of commentators for the last two weeks have been saying, he's safe, he's answered all the questions and it's done now and we have to put this to bed and he's a statesman and he works for the Eurogroup Group and it's great mm. and all that sort of stuff. So he was exonerated before the full thing came out yes. but is he actually going to be in the clear now? Uh, well that's up to Sippo. Uh, politically speaking he probably is out of the woods so to speak because um, when he had his big dull Q&A session on Tuesday evening yeah. the, the Star Chambers it's called sometimes he did the very rare thing which like is although man. his story is maybe a little improbable or implausible he did stick to it and he did manage to get out the other side of that dull grilling without raising too many fresh questions. And that really is the asset test because sometimes politicians have gone into those sessions and they've ended up raising more questions than they've answered. Mm. And then that's when the story becomes so big that the only way to stifle it is by somebody resigning. Mm. Pascal Donahue, I think, managed not to do that on Tuesday night. So he'll probably be able to hang around for as long as Sipo is investigating this and who knows how long that will take. It is Sipo, by the way, not Sipo, <laughs> uh, despite what people might think, uh, having heard that clip. Um, I'm going to, I could wrap it on about Pascal only for more hours and yeah. hours and hours, but really do need to wrap up. Um, Richard's documentary, Trump's Last Stand, still available on the Virgin Media Player or anywhere you get your television. Uh, and well worth a look. Uh, do check it out on the Virgin Media Player. Uh, until next time, Richard Chambers, thank you. Thank you, Gav. Sarah King, thank you. Thank you, Gav. Thanks to all of our contributors. Thanks to Ross, Maxine, Gareth, and everyone in the production gallery. Thank you for watching or listening. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.